0: Piper's Farm was founded in 1989 by Peter Gregg and his wife, Henry. The farm is just north of Exeter in Devon in Britain, and today it is run by their son Will and his partner, Abby, in a multi-generational partnership and succession achievement story. Peter Gregg worked for his father's farm and shop business and saw the factory farm model brought from the U.S. to the U.K. by his father post-World War II and he saw it evolve into the beast it has become today. Greg never felt right raising animals under the oppressive, unhealthy conditions that the factory farm model requires, and his development of Piper's Farm and the multi-farm network it involves today has been a many decades-long de-evolution back to the older traditional methods of animal husbandry, community network, and local butchery. Abby is the co-author of Piper's Farm Sustainable Meat Cookbook, Recipes and Wisdom for Considered Carnivores, a gorgeous and stunning book filled with essays, photographs, and decadent recipes. She is the one we will be talking to here today. Abby's thoughts are profound and distinct, and she shares them here in vibrant clarity with the background and the farm experience to match. How is meat to be ethically handled? How does waste factor into all of this? Why are consumers so key to sustainable farms? And even what are some details we can use in the kitchen to improve our meat preparation at home? Patrons of the pod will find a selection of recipes from the cookbook in their treasure trove ready to download today. And we will talk about a few more recipes in the episode here. Patrons can also check their private podcast feed to enjoy a short bonus after show with Abby, where we went just a little deeper and just a little more informally into some of what we covered on the show. So much about our food system can be depressing and dismal. Abby will leave us inspired by the beauty that is possible and the strength of choice that each one of us has.
1: Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome back to Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. This week we are super excited, both Andrea and I, to have Abby on um, the podcast. She is the co-author of a wonderful book that I have in front of me at the moment, um, which is called The Sustainable Meat Cookbook, and the little subtitle is Recipes and Wisdom for Considered Carnivores, which is a book that's come out of the farm, which Um, Abby works at which is called Piper's Farm which is in the southwest of the UK and both Andrew and I have had this book for about six weeks now and are absolutely loving it so we wanted to get Abby on to talk to you all about what the book is, everything that's in the book and lots about the recipe. So welcome Abby, thank you for your time coming on with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me on, it's such a pleasure to have a have a chat to you about what we've created and what our kind of mission is as well.
1: We're excited. So the first question we ask all our guests is, what was the last thing that you ate?
2: Well, if I'm going to be completely honest, it was slightly indulgent. Um, It was not your usual sort of Monday night dinner. Um, I actually was doing a bit of a recipe test for a slow cooked native breed pork shoulder. Um, And basically I cook that down with a whole load of cider, a little bit of cider brandy, and then some beautiful Bramley apples that we've got in season here at the moment. And I'm always looking for different ways that we can use them up because they're just so abundant. Um, And then I've cooked that with just some beautiful like buttery mashed potato chives out of the garden and then some veg from my veg patch. So it was quite an autumnal feast. Wow, there amazing. is
1: <laughs> there is a recipe somewhere in the book, and of course I don't know exactly where it is now, with a picture of a um joint of pork with all the apples all around it with crackling having come out of the oven. And you talking about that made me think about that. It sounds absolutely amazing.
2: It it's one of those like perfect partnerships, that kind of autumnal pork and apple, and there's just such a myriad of ways that you can kind of combine the both. So I'm always kind of tweaking and testing and looking for just different combinations and different ways to utilize them
0: together. Yeah. Yeah. With okay, that recipe, so, Allison. Yeah. Yeah. That We made that one out of the book. You oh, did? Oh ah. Yes. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> It's so good. I do say it myself. <laughs> 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 this book, Allison, had to listen to me basically scream and cry on the phone to her and tell her how much I love it and how beautiful it is and how it's the hero we need because you take all these cuts of meat and names and things that people maybe have never worked with before and they're just so simply presented and the way you let all the pieces of the food just shine in their full strength is amazing. And I listened to a couple of interviews with uh, you and Peter, Greg, is that how you say the last name? Yeah, Greg. Yeah, definitely. Uh So you, both of you were on an interview together. I listened to that and I listened to a couple others with him and he said something a couple times in a few different ways that struck me where he said, every step of the farming leads to the pleasure of the food on the plate. And I absolutely love that. We have similar animals to what you have out here with a milk cow and beef cow and turkeys and chickens and sheep and pigs. And I feel that tangibly when we're moving the animals around and thinking, okay, all this movement is going to produce that rich flavor on the plate, you know. Why did you write this book? Um, this gorgeous, beautiful, (laughs) stunning book.
2: Thank you so much. It's so lovely for you to say that. And, you know, it it genuinely warms my heart whenever I feel like this book has had a little impact on someone's life. Um, I think that wasn't why I wrote it, but it's been one of the benefits of writing it. Uh But in terms of why... we got to a place in the, in the business, in the the business that um, my other half's parents had founded over 35 years ago, where we were doing all of this stuff. You know, we were making all of this effort on the farm and, you know, really looking at the detail of every single part of the system. and How can we possibly sort of do it the best we can possibly do it? And yet we weren't necessarily sharing all of that with you know, our, our, kind of audience. Um, and it just felt like it, my vision for Piper's Farm has always been to kind of open, open the door up, open the windows, breathe fresh air in and allow people to properly reconnect and understand with where their food has come from and have that kind of faith in the transparency that a food system should offer. And it felt like a cookbook was kind of a natural, um, a natural opportunity to really be able to let people into kind of the magic of Pipers and then just connect that with what they know. So, you know, they don't necessarily know the farm. They don't necessarily farm themselves, although it is lovely when I hear from people that have farmed or do farm and they've picked up the book and have loved it. But, you know, so much of what we do is is providing people with ingredients But those ingredients have such a magical backstory. And I think it is very easy when you're cooking just to kind of, you know, look at a pack of butter as, you know, that's all it is, rather than really understand the kind of love and care and effort that has gone into making that product. And perhaps the sort of uniqueness of that pack of butter versus, you know, butter that's made down the road by somebody else. And I feel very passionate that we have you know, we have a responsibility of farmers um, to reconnect people with the food that they're eating and, and enable them to really understand, uh, yeah, what's gone into to making that. So the book was sort of, you know, 30 years of Peter and Henry, who are my parents-in-law who founded the farm. Um, it was sort of 30 years of their kind of effort and vision. And then really a lot of it has been the last 10 years of Will and I taking on the mantle and running the business and Yeah, and shaking things up a little bit.
0: If you've been around ancestral food for 10 minutes, you know liver is a superfood. You're looking at a food packed with vitamins A, K, a broad spectrum of B vitamins, CoQ10, bioavailable iron, plus many essential minerals, and more. Liver is your first stop when seeking to gain energy and restore your health. Not only is it a delicacy and staple of traditional diets, It's the first thing most animal predators go for when hunting. Are you looking for a good way to work liver into your daily life, but getting it on the table just isn't happening yet, or as much as you'd like? This is where liver capsules come in. Allison and I are both supplementing our ancestral diets with liver capsules from One Earth Health. We get all the incredible benefits of liver, even when we're on the road, or preparing non-liver meals for our family, and the sourcing and preparation has all been handled for us. One Earth Health produces nutritious organ capsules from 100% grass-fed New Zealand-raised cattle. Support the pod by purchasing through our link, and you'll also get 5% off and free shipping as a bonus. Go to oneearthhealth.com slash ancestral kitchen or check the show notes.
1: I just wanted to pick up, Abby, on that kind of idea of opening the windows and letting in the air, because this book is completely inspiring and you know that the word inspire really is about breathing and for people who haven't seen the book yet it's uh it has tons of recipes in it and those alone would be enough but it also has some really beautifully written um essays short essays on different aspects of farming and food and Andrew and I will be you know picking out a couple of those through the um interview that we do. But also it has amazing photos, not just of the food, but of the farm as well. And a lot of our listeners are in the States, um, as Andrew is. And I feel like the English countryside is so beautifully portrayed and the English seasons are so beautifully portrayed in the book that really it is opening those windows. It is, it has been for me, you know, and I'm English. feels like opening the windows and letting the air in through the pictures through the words and then through the recipes so you've done a wonderful job at at achieving that mission I think in the book oh
2: thank you and I mean on that note I have to say it's been such a team effort I am so lucky that um, I've worked with an amazing photographer for the last sort of 10 plus years uh, a guy called Matt Austin and um, I think I probably drive him mad when we're doing stuff because I'm like well should we maybe just change that napkin or should we you know move that fork out or whatever but um, but he just has such an eye and because we've worked together for so long and he knows me and, and the farm and everything so well He it is just literally capturing that magic moment and he's so talented and as I say I'm so lucky that he you know we were able to collaborate on putting this book together and to use his beautiful photography I mean one of my favorite photos is we were we went up to Dartmoor and it was about sort of half past five six o'clock in the morning just waiting for the sunrise to come up and it was so cold it was this sort of bleak patch of Dartmoor where the wind and if anyone from the U.S. doesn't know it's um in the southwest of England it's it's this area very rugged moor it's it's tough going out there there's there's not a lot there's not even a lot of trees that support survive up there and it, we were on this sort of flat piece with the wind whistling through and frost still on the ground and I was just had this sort of vision of capturing the old mutton sheep as they kind of you know mosey along this kind of crunching through the frost and then the sunrise coming up and it's it's in the um I think it's in the October chapter and it's just this beautiful golden image with that first son and and one of our very majestic mutton sheep standing proud and it's those kind of moments that you think well life's worth living isn't it to to have been able to be lucky enough to experience that moment and that is very much what I wanted for the book is to be able to let other people experience that magic that I get to live and breathe really
1: well Well, it really and you have
0: (laughs) yeah it really came through in the book and I told Allison that one of the things that I love so much about this book is there's so many. I, I I feel, and I saw what you put in the book, and I understood that you were showing us how much you love the life and how much you love the experience, and how much that translates into the sensation when you sit down to the plate of food. And I told Allison I felt like this was such a poetic capturing of all of that because sometimes I try to tell people and I just don't have the words you know to explain how different it is when you eat the food and you know where every single thing down to the marjoram leaves on your plate came from and and it's not really a oh goody I did the ethical thing type feeling it's just a very raw sensation of survival and happiness and good flavor (laughs) And it's all here in this book. Yeah, I found the picture of the sheep on page 199.
1: It is beautiful.
2: Let me go see it. (laughs) It is beautiful, isn't it? I just think that's such, for me, that's such a sort of capturing of the autumn of that moment. And yeah, that's what we've tried to do is just really sort of freeze frame those seasons. And, And like you say, you know, I think there is something about when you really appreciated the kind of ingredient that you're working with, you just take a little bit more care over it when you're producing a meal. And, you know, we very much like sitting down and sharing food with loved ones. And I'm not saying you have to do it every day of the week and we're all busy and lives are busy. But when you take that time out and you think I'm going to cook something really special, I'm going to use special things. It is something that we should celebrate. And I think in our kind of busy life. sometimes we forget just to take that moment and go you know the simple things in life are sometimes just the best and the most important and it doesn't need to be oh, yes. complex or fancy or you know it, it's just good wholesome food that's been made with care and that can be so meaningful to people
0: oh I, I just
2: love that so you so the pe...
0: oh go on, sorry Angela. Alison <laughs> no you I, I
2: just
1: wanted to to remind um to tell patrons, really, that the publisher of the book have said that um, we can share two of the recipes from the book with the patrons. So um, each of us has picked one. Andrea's picked one and I've picked one. And those uh-huh. will be in the treasure trove for patrons of the podcast. So I wanted to get that in before we get completely lost in all the essays and the recipes, which we're going to do. I know you can carry on now, Andrea. Thank you. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. no, that's a good point, Alison. Yeah, everybody go and download that. Um, from the patron all the patrons go grab that and Allison, it's a good thing you said that too because the recipe i chose actually relates to the essay that i chose and Allison knows that i was um, messaging her and <laughs> about like every essay oh this one's so good <laughs> mm-hmm. um were these essays written by peter greg
2: no so they were they were written by rachel and i so i had a call oh, very them. good who worked on the book with me. So Rachel was a friend of mine and she had sort of helped me out over the years in the business. And when I had this kind of approach to say, we would love you to write a cookbook, I immediately Uh got imposter syndrome and went, I can't write a cookbook. I haven't got the first (laughs) idea how to write a cookbook. Um, And luckily I have a very dear friend who she is a, a phenomenal writer and she has written books before. Um, and so she kind of just steadied my hand and steadied the ship and kept me focused and said, look, this is the mm. this is the kind of magic bits and yeah, and help guide me through the process. So together, um, I think I had like a very strong idea of what I wanted to put in the book and the stories I wanted to tell, but it's it's magic working with somebody else who can really bring the best out of you and say, you know, I think, I think this bit's a bit too farmer lingo. This is too complex. We need to try <laughs> and simplify this. Um, and so that was sort of Rachel's, um, yeah, Rachel's kind of input into the book. But yeah, the essays. I mean, they they absolutely everything. I I feel like I've learned has been the amazing knowledge handed down to me by Peter and Henry. Um, wow. And you know, seeing how they have approached farming and really understanding their kind of vision, which is just incredible. And given that they were talking about these things sort of 30-plus years ago, you know, antibiotic resistance, the importance of permanent pasture, you know, why we need to keep small-scale abattoirs. They were really banging these drums, you know, that drum years and years ago before it was kind of, I don't know, a bit more on trend or a bit more acceptable. People kind of thought they were a little bit mad. And its it's been really important to try and get their vision across. But also, I think, um, I think definitely Will and I have a a viewpoint as well on where we want to see things going. So it was, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, I feel like everything, it's never one person's journey, is it? It's all the different people you meet along the way and all the different people that you collaborate with that kind of create those stories.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Completely. And the essays alone are worth the book. I mean, you could buy the book for the essays or the pictures or the recipes, but the fact that all three are in here just makes it um absolute treat. On the, I think it's actually the first essay in the book where you called it "From Food Waste to Cooking Flow," and I wanted to highlight this one for the listener and hear you talk about it a little bit because I think I'm really glad you put this one right in the front of the book because you captured a lot of what <clears throat> Allison and I discuss here and what what we feel here on the farm and Allison working with farms in Italy for her food where you talked about just shifting from or or thinking instead of what do I want to eat, thinking what do I have and then turning that into something which you show us so well how to do in the recipe section and how this mental shift uh, drives a lot of what happens um, in the kitchen, on the plate instead of just thinking what's what's popular what's going on Instagram right now and then going and buying those things you're thinking what do I have could you talk a little bit about that um, aspect of your cooking and and how that factored into the recipes in the book and what like you using up the apples for your dinner last night and things like that yeah
2: yeah definitely I I think it's sort of two sort of strands to it I think growing up in a in a rural environment, you have this kind of innate connection to the landscape. You're, you know, there's not awfully a lot to do. When I was a kid, you know, I, there wasn't lots and lots, there wasn't Netflix, there wasn't even the internet. Oh my God, am that old? You know, they're, they're, what we did was we spent time outside and when you're outside a lot, you know, whether you're down fishing, at the, you know, by the river or climbing trees or doing whatever we were up to you just have this sort of connection to the seasonal shifts. And it felt like in my childhood, quite a lot of um, the way we kind of broke up the year was by what was happening. So there would be, you know, when the blackberries come into season, we would suddenly, that would be a fun thing to do is to go out blackberry picking and then apples and apple picking. And, And so you kind of just notice what's about and it seems like just, second nature to me to think well I'm going to use it because it's here and I'm so aware that this season is so fleeting and the other kind of connection with that is you know this kind of changing climate means those seasons shift and you know a blackberry season one year might be really long and then the next year it might kind of you know they might go over in just a matter of weeks and so it sort of forces you into going well if I love this thing and it only appears here and now then let's make the most of it. And then I guess alongside of that, it's this idea of waste. When you've gone to the trouble to, I'm using blackberries as an example, but you fought through the bushes and you've got spikes and scratches and all the things to show for it. I am not going to waste anything. You know, I have really <laughs> fought to, <laughs> to get that food on my table. And so why would I not maximize kind of every single inch of it? And I think it's those two things together. It's that sort of growing up in that um, in that kind of rural landscape where you are so much more connected, and to be honest, quite a lot of it's born out of necessity or there is nothing else. Um, and then this this feeling of going, I don't want to waste something that I really appreciate the value of it. You know, if you if you ever go out foraging and you stumble upon some amazing wild mushrooms, I mean, they're like gold, aren't they? Why would you ever waste anything? With that why would you then be going oh actually you know what I don't fancy that you're you know you're kind of excited to cook with those <laughs> things while they're there and I think I mean the other side of that is I, I was incredibly lucky growing up I had an amazing Amazing childhood and a lot of stuff that was instilled in me was from my grandparents who again are from a very different generation. Um, The way they approach food is totally different. Um, They didn't have supermarkets when they were kids you know that those things just don't didn't exist and there wasn't this drive of convenience and so a lot of the way I was taught to cook was about that is, you know, about respecting those ingredients that you have and maximizing those, and not wasting anything, and finding, you know, ingenious, creative ways to stretch things out or make them last. Or one of our famous, um, famous things in our family is my grandpa he was amazing at growing tomatoes, just the best tomatoes I've ever tasted. Probably just because it's, you know, they were his, but they were just amazing. And. You know, he would have them coming out of his ears, and we would be making chutneys, and we would be making soups, and you know, you would just all of the different ways you could use up that amazing ingredient and really value it. And I feel like with with the world of convenience, we've kind of been, I don't know, brainwashed into thinking that that's not something that we should value anymore. What we should value is what's around the corner and what's next and what's the next latest fashion and you know, what are all the cool kids doing? And actually, what we really should value is is what is right there, what is being produced on our doorstep, what is made with care. Um, and I feel very passionate about trying to reinvigorate that. I don't see it as something of oh, well, you're just turning back the you know back time, and you're not living in this kind of modern world. It is a blend of how do you kind of integrate that with a modern way of living, but without losing those traditional values that I think are so important, and they're they're timeless aren't they it's just kind of common sense um I just get very excited about sort of (laughs) seasons and food And, and like I say with those apples I'm sat there thinking I've got a tree full of apples what on earth can I do with them it seems criminal to let them drop on the ground and just go to waste so um yeah I mean that's that to me is is very important and A lot of the recipes in the book are you maybe have a big lump of meat on the weekend, you cook a big joint, and then it's again, how do you maximize that throughout the week? How can you use those leftovers? How can you kind of create value from all of that effort that you put in?
0: I love it. And it feels like a a principle, something broader when you say, Instead of trying to hunt out what's on trend, can't we see what's right in front of us and enjoy it? And that feels like a, a good way to live your life generally, <laughs> not just in the kitchen. Totally. The recipe that I, one of the first recipes I fell in love out of, I so far I've fallen in love with all the ones I've made, but we raise chickens and we love chickens and they're kind of, auxiliary to our cows and everything else. I think you actually talked about that in the book or yeah. maybe I heard that in an interview. I don't know. <laughs> I just <laughs> kind of live in a little Piper's farm world right now, reading and listening and stalking your website. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyways, your fire cooked spatchcock chicken. Of course I grabbed that because I think it was right when Allison um, had I had this book sent to me that we were actually butchering chicken. So I had chicken all around me. So I put two on the grill and cooked them as per your instructions. And um, my husband said it's okay if I make all our chicken like that from that. Yes. <laughs> he loved it so much. Um, but that's a wonderful recipe, and I feel like really versatile for anybody, even if you live on your own and you cooked a chicken like that on a Sunday and then shredded it up and worked with it over the next even more than a week it might last you but um one of the little notes that you put in there or the whoever contributed the recipe I know you've alluded to several chefs in the back of the book yeah um which I appreciated was to let the meat come to room temperature before cooking it I admire that that's in there because I I also do that with my meat or sausages and things before I cook them I want them at room temperature but uh for sure in our modern age of factory food you know keep the bird really cold and don't let it out of the refrigerator until you're about to put it in the oven uh so that's just such a fun detail do you guys do that with all of your meats or just yeah we do
2: yeah and I mean that's such a good point I think again. Because of the way our food system globally has gone, we've kind of, again, been brainwashed into thinking, oh, my God, all of these ingredients are going to kill us. They all have to come with like health warning (laughs) and, you know, we have to mollycoddle people all the way through what to do. And actually, that is because the system of of food production is inherently dangerous and unsafe, uh, as in the sort of global industrialized food system there are so many bacteria there are so many challenges that those birds have faced uh you know going through their life that when you do come to cook them you have got an even bigger job on your hand because you're not only trying to cook that thing and turn it into something delicious when quite frankly it's probably relatively dull to start with but you're also trying to manage all those obstacles uh, from you know bacteria and from all of these crazy things that are, that are definitely in that food system when food is produced properly and I guess like you guys will know working in Italy and working in some of these other places where luckily the kind of food system hasn't been quite as um, as torn up as it has been in the UK and in the US certainly Mm. there is a totally different connection that you can have with that ingredient instead of panicking and thinking oh my god you know, this thing is going to spoil, this thing is going to kill me, I need to plunge it into boiling water, I need to, you know, do all of these mad things that will just ruin the texture of it, you can start to really celebrate that ingredient, and you can start to be way more creative with it, um, and I mean, we, you know, I, I don't say this lightly, but you could eat a piece of our chicken raw, there is absolutely mm. nothing wrong with it to, to do that, I mean, it wouldn't be as lovely and as <laughs> enjoyable experience, and Putting it with, you know, lemon and marjoram and black pepper and garlic and all those gorgeous things. Mm. But there is nothing unsafe about the food that we've produced because we've produced it slowly, carefully, sensibly, you know, free from some of those um, processes and steps that that happen in an industrial system. And so, yes, we definitely say with all meat, there is this thing that happens if something is absolutely fridge cold. And then you immediately put heat against it. It is a very different chemical reaction to if something mm-hmm. is, is warm. It's a little bit like, I don't know how much, you know, your audience might be into their cheese. But the difference between leaving a, a cheese out and letting it come to room temperature before eating it than eating it straight cold out of the fridge. It might just be something, if you haven't tried it, try it and, and literally see how your kind of taste buds react to that there there is kind of a lot to be said for for preparing your food in the right way but I wouldn't advocate doing that with um with food from industrial I mean I wouldn't advocate cooking eating from an industrial system Mm. but certainly yeah when it comes to our meat do bring it up to tension. allow allow that kind of meat to sit and you know and enjoy that process it's it's the same as when you're um there is a bit in the in the book that I wrote about cooking over fire. And it is this sort of thing of going, you know, don't rush it. Wait till those coals have got that coat and the kind of smoke is right and the heat is right. And then, you know, cook. Don't feel like you've got to kind of rush through everything and, you know, hit something in the oven and whack that oven up super hot. Or, I mean, my one of my biggest pet hates is when I very often say preheat the oven and it's not there for you know just for fun it is so important get that oven and you know beautifully up to temperature before you start trying to cook something because again that the reaction that that product will have um, with how you treat it will be whether that dish is a successful dish or not as you know or has been a bit of a failure especially when um if you're looking to create beautiful crackling with a piece of pork it's it's super important Mm -hmm. that you get those kind of temperatures right and that meat is in the right position before you start cooking it rather than going I don't, straight I don't
1: know in. where you where you got your imposter syndrome from, but you're certainly not an imposter, Abby, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> and you... I mean, it's in all of us, isn't it? You just immediately yeah. go,
0: oh my God. <laughs> you are speaking to the right audience because our audience knows cheese. Half of them are making cheese and they, they love a good cheese. So that is going to resonate with all... And I love that you said that about the chicken, because I actually said that to someone who was here yesterday. I said, you could eat this chicken raw. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you want to, but you could. <laughs> and she just, she was like, wow, really? Okay. <laughs> but I, It is so
2: funny, isn't it? And in, its, yeah. in many ways, yep. it's a little bit sad that this this kind of fear is so deeply entrenched in people now that they they are so fearful of of food. And meat is one of those ones. I think meat and, you know, especially raw milk cheeses, things like that, people do approach them with so much caution now. And it is sad because there is, you know, you find the right producer, somebody that's produced something in the right way, and you can have so much fun and creativity with that product and you don't need to be afraid of it. You should just, it should be a pleasure to cook with and a pleasure to eat. Yeah, agreed. How do you feel
1: about our food world? Do you want to see change like we do? If so, head over to patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast and help support us to get this work out as far and wide as we can. To say thank you, we've got a host of extra ancestral food material to share with you. You can connect with us more deeply via our Patreon exclusive podcasts, our after-show chats, our dedicated forum and our ancestral food get-togethers. And there's a library of downloads that will support you in your own kitchen. By joining, you'll be really helping us to continue making this podcast and to focus on having a bigger impact, reaching more people, making a greater difference. So we can move together towards the future food world we all want to see. We've got four levels of support to suit different pockets. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Ancestral Kitchen podcast for all the details. I want to um, highlight my first essay that I wanted to talk about and it kind of segues into it quite well. You're talking about fear because there's an essay in the book about abattoirs being the keystone of local food systems. And I think there's a whole kind of swathe of fear and kind of rejection and all these things that we feel around something which is very natural in our life cycle, in the life cycles of the world, which is death. And I didn't really know there was a problem with abattoirs in the UK until a couple of years ago I found out via the Sustainable Food Trust what the situation was with local abattoirs in the UK and I went to Wales this summer, and I went to visit Holden Farm, and on the way to Holden Farm I was talking to Rebecca, and she showed me, the. we drove past an abattoir, a huge massive abattoir, and she said to me, all the lamb for Sainsbury's, which is a major UK supermarket, no matter where that lamb has been grown in the UK, is slaughtered in this abattoir, and then it is shipped back all throughout the country to the different branches of Sainsbury's. And I was just like, what? You're telling me that lamb is coming down from like, you know, Scotland or hundreds and hundreds of miles away to be killed here and then just to be shipped back up there. It just made no sense to me. And there's a a fabulous highlighting of the issue in the book. And you, you say in the essay somewhere that a third of small abattoirs have closed in the UK in the last 10 years. And you say how important it is for us to be able to send animals to be slaughtered in um, a local environment, so they don't have to travel far, so the people who run those abattoirs understand, not ship them hundreds of miles across countries. And what I wanted to ask you really regarding this was, I know that the situation's slightly different in the US, but uh, having talked to Andrea in the last couple of weeks, she's saying there's a similar problem in Canada. And I wondered what can listeners to the podcast do? What can we do to um, try to halt what's happening with the abattoir
2: closures? It's it's very very difficult as a consumer actually on this subject because it is so far removed from the consumer. There is such a lack of transparency when it comes to slaughter because it's been decided by those big food retailers that actually it's not palatable for their audience mm. to know about. And yes, that may be driven in part by by the audience that go, oh, I can't face, you know... I don't want to see something as an animal. I want to see it as an object. I can't face sort of Mm. coming to terms with that. And again, that is where our food system has eroded over the years and we've become so sort of disconnected with the realities of it. So as a consumer, it is so hard for you to really know what you're buying, how it's been killed. It is not on any labeling. It is something that people don't like to talk about. There is this sort of Assumption, and even um, you know, even a little bit in our sector with people on the kind of ethical, sustainable side, there is a bit of an assumption where people go, "Oh, you know, but customers won't really want to know that, and I don't really want to have to talk about it because mm-hmm. it opens up a huge pan of worms." And I mean, we are very uh, different in the fact that I love talking about it. <laughs> I don't think you can eat meat with good conscience without knowing that. I don't completely. think you should eat. If you have any concern over going, I can't deal with that, I would say you shouldn't be eating that product. You should absolutely be completely um, you know, right-minded about understanding that that was a living being it did live a life it was there for a purpose and it and it now this is you know this is the the end that it is met and we as farmers as retailers all of those things have a huge responsibility to allow people to understand that in a way that isn't scary or threatening or off-putting but in a way that is completely transparent and so, you know, to answer the question, what can a consumer do, the best advice I can give, which is not easy either, is to really get to know the people that you're buying food from. Really, really dig and dig and dig and ask them the questions. And if they won't ask, answer the questions, go and find somebody that will. Yeah. And I think when it comes to asking about slaughter, again, there are lots of people in the space that are doing the right thing. And they do worry because of things like there are quite strong, um, especially in the UK, I imagine it's, it's around the world as well. But there are quite a lot of things that go on with animal rights groups. There are quite a lot of sort of yeah. covert things that happen, which leaves farmers not wanting to be that upfront. Or if they get an email or somebody asking lots of questions about slaughter, there is definitely an element where they go, Oh, oh, I don't know. Should I be, you know, answering this? Should I tell this person? Are they secretly gonna be doing something? That that is a real problem. But that's what I say as an industry. If you're doing if you're doing things in the best way, you're completely comfortable. With how you are managing the slaughter process, that's where I say open door. You know, we have an open door to every aspect of our business. If somebody wanted to come and see, our, you know, one of the abattoirs we work with, I would happily show them. It, it, there is nothing sort of in our in our supply chain um, that I wouldn't be comfortable showing a customer. If there was, it shouldn't be in our, in our supply chain. But it, it is a really really difficult one. The most important thing is supporting small-scale independent farmers because by supporting them, they are more likely to support a small-scale local abattoir. Also, at the same time, many of those people now do not have a small-scale abattoir. So many of them have closed. I mean, Cornwall, which is um, a very beautiful county in England, um, it it is a relatively big county and the lack of small-scale abattoirs for the amount of agriculture that is in that county is staggering. Whereas, you know, we're just over the border in Devon, literally right mm. next door, and we have a whole selection, thankfully, of small-scale abattoirs in Devon. You go over to Dorset and you're in a similar position as you were in Cornwall, but you go into Somerset and North Somerset, and there are a few more options there. So it is a problem that around the country there are pockets where we are still... There are still good small-scale abattoirs, but increasingly there are so few. And it does leave farmers with no other option other than having to travel really far. The crazy thing is that it has been allowed to get to this place. And, I mean, the only other thing that you as a consumer can do, but it's whether you feel like banging your head against a brick wall or not, is you can write to your local MP, you can keep campaigning, you can say, look, this is really important. Um, and you can do the work that sort of, you know, people like us do to try and raise awareness of this. I mean, Peter last week, uh, was invited to attend a back British farming event at number 10, um, with our government. And he met, uh, the ministry, uh, uh you know, uh, basically he met the whole team from DEFRA and he literally raised the fact that this is something that is absolutely critical. And currently the government's plan is failing. It is too optimistic and it's too unrealistic. Um, And it's also like many things that they're kind of, not to get too political on you, um, but like a lot of the things that uh, they're putting forward at the moment it is being put forward by people that really don't understand the sector. And so it is very challenging to try and implement mm-hmm. some of those things without that kind of knowledge. So it is absolutely vital. And, and all I can say to anyone listening to this, there, you know, you have to get comfortable with slaughter as a really, really important element of consuming meat. And if there is any part of you that thinks I'm not comfortable with this then I would suggest go go on a lear, you know a learning journey see if you can find out more about it and then find what method you know what way you are comfortable with and as I say if there's something that you go look I just I'm not comfortable with this at all then you know I would say should you be eating that product really
1: mm. yeah I think I think that's some really great advice I feel like the relationships side of what you said is the thing that Resonating me very deeply you know it's we talk about this on the podcast all the time go and find a farmer and talk to them you know and get to know them and you know rather than just sending an email to find out um about what um how meat is slaughtered you if you get to know your farmer and build a relationship with him you can Find out about things like that and you know where your food comes from when we go back to the the beginning of what you were talking about with Andrea and how different everything is when you know where your food comes from. I wanted to talk about the recipe for panzanella next. That's my first recipe. And um, it feels to me, the whole seasonality thing you were talking about with the blackberries and everything earlier on, that is what inspired me to choose this recipe i kind of flicking through i was like oh, i want to make all of this i want to make this I want to make this one and i thought hang on what one do i want to make now and i'm looking around me and it, it it's august and i'm in italy and of course there's there are tomatoes everywhere and there's such a beautiful picture of the plant the panzanella in the um, book the tomatoes are shining and i always love panzanella so i thought okay this is the right season what i have to do is make this panzanella so I had local tomatoes. I've got some basil in the garden that I brought in and my son chopped and cut with some scissors the basil into the salad. It uses balsamic vinegar, which is... I always kind of default to apple cider and red wine vinegar and I didn't have any balsamic in the cupboard, so I went and found some balsamic vinegar, which um, I haven't had for ages. And it's so good in that salad. It just it brings that sweetness to it which lifts it up and my son tried it and he was like wow this vinegar is amazing we can we have this all the time mum <laughs> and the, the one the one thing that was in that recipe as well that really um, I felt pushed it into the amazing was the fact that panzanella is a salad with dried bread in it you know, it's a way of using up old bread really you can use stale bread but in your recipe you fry that bread in the pan with the chicken so I was frying the chicken ready for um, the salad. And then I chopped up the, the last few slices we had of a sourdough spelt, which is what I make most often. And I put that in the frying pan. And so all those gorgeous juices which are coming out of the chicken were going into that um, into the kind of croutons of sourdough bread. And then mixing all that up with the beautiful tomatoes, the basil from the garden, the um, crunchy sourdough, which had the chicken smokes all in it and the balsamic vinegar it is just absolutely inspired that that tip with the sourdough and the chicken fat and I wondered is that something that you um cook and eat in at the farm yourself is that a recipe that you do
2: um with your your family made me so hungry because (laughs) I have eaten that dish on repeat so many times (laughs) And every time I'm like, oh, my God, if I do say so, I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> it's my it other is. half one of his favourites. In the summer, it, he's literally like, can, can we have Hansel Anna? Can we have it? Can we have it again? Can we have it again? I'm like, we've had it three nights. Sorry. Yeah, but can we have it again? <laughs> it is so good. It is just a joy. And, I mean, it's interesting because you said this thing about British countryside and definitely, you know, the photography and a lot of the the recipes are inspired by British countryside, but there are a few influences throughout the book. I was I was very lucky to go to Italy um, and to go to Modena and uh, go to the home of balsamic vinegar mm. and see these amazing casks that had been literally survived world wars. I mean, they were like, don't worry about auntie, you know, upstairs with the bombing. We're going to hide the, you know, the cask of, <laughs> of balsamic before we get <laughs> to her. It was unbelievable, the real family treasure, you know, these things that have been around for hundreds of years and where those casks have sort of decayed and then been rebuilt around them to keep that that vinegar in place. And so that you know I, I've been super lucky to experience some amazing things like that. And then when you get ingredients as good as that with that kind of story and with that value, it, you know, like I think I said right at the start, just simple. there's a, there's I don't know how many, maybe five, six ingredients in that recipe. Um, but each Mm. one of them just really sings it sings alone and then they just kind of shine together and I mean the other lovely thing is with that recipe is you don't need to have the chicken and I mean the chicken does magic to that bread Mm. Um, but you know you could do the same thing with pork or bacon you could you know there are lots of other things that you can switch things out with um, and kind of create the same result and and we do over time if I don't have basil I might use another herb from the garden that we do have or um, but it, it is just you know, the magic of the alchemy of that. The key thing is not to put that I I like to sort of not put that bread in too soon. Um so it just has that little crispiness as well. So when you're kind of crunching through the salad, I have made it before where it's really soaked up all of that vinegar and it's lovely, but it's a different kind of vibe to that recipe. But yeah, it is one that my other half absolutely loves and you know summer summer's in the garden it's it's on repeat when people come over because also it's so easy and so quick
1: (laughs) yeah i agree i had a feeling it might be a favorite because it just it it sings kind of sharing food together and you're right it's really easy so i had a feeling it was
2: yeah good choice that one
1: (laughs) bring to mind your kitchen Now imagine it full of expert women fermenters ready to teach you everything they know. Vegetables, salumi, drinks, kefir, dairy, sourdough, vinegar, koji, and much more. The Fermentation School is just that, online, in your kitchen, whenever you want. World-leading female educators sharing their incredible experience in video courses that will guide you step-by-step through your next fermentation project. Ancestral Kitchen Podcast has teamed up with the school to offer its 60 plus courses to you at a 10% discount. When you say yes, you'll also be supporting the work Andrea and I do as you skill up. Go check out their courses via the link in the show notes. I'm betting there's something there that's going to get you really excited. Happy fermenting. Andrea, do you want to go on to your second essay?
0: Yes, I do. So you have an essay in here that spoke very much to my heart. It's on page 121 for all the listeners following along in the book. I know I've been posting about your book in my Instagram and I keep getting messages every day. Okay, I bought the book. (laughs) So I know people are following along. So it's called The Slow Disappearance of Family Farms. And our experience in the U S feels similar to what you described in this essay Mm. said there was an unsettling statistic that the classic British family farm could die out in the next 30 years. If farming continued the way it was going. And in the U S we our 2017 census or stats showed that the average age of farmer was 57 and a Mm. half years old. And you know, that, that (laughs) is not a good sign for an industry. And we have the mega farms and the CAFOs. And then in the U.S., we subsidize um, industrial glyphosate type farming practices to the tune of trillions of dollars. And so all this has created this expectation of really cheap, poor quality food um, that has low nutrients, doesn't taste very good. And people eat a lot more volume in order to feel full Mm -hmm. and we have a cheap food culture which I don't know if it's the same over there but over here even if you drive a really nice car and you have a fancy you know leather brand name handbag you brag about that you got some food for super cheap and so there's this idea that food should be cheap and we also have a grim statistic in the U.S. that Only 80% of farms make it to the two-year mark. And then only 2% of farms are still in business after five years. And I feel that part of that, from what I've seen on the collapse of farms myself, is a lot of farms still follow unprofitable commodity pricing models. And Mm. the land prices are priced for developers to build housing developments on, not for people Mm. to raise cattle. And then they're, again, competing with the subsidized farms that can sell things for way cheaper. And then we also have um, the experience of a lot of first-generation farmers, and there's not a lot of wisdom and experience guiding those first-generation farmers. So I was wondering if you could talk about this what's happening in the UK, and then um, if you see a counterpoint to that um, disintegration of farming culture and the small farm culture. Do you know what? It, it just sort of actually
2: physically put a shiver down my spine when you said that statistic in the US, and it is, it is truly, truly heartbreaking. And sadly, the UK is, is right on the heels of the US. I think, you know, I always used to say, what's happening in the US is sort of reflected about nine years down the track in the UK. And I think that distance is shortening. Um, and it's devastating. I don't know if this is, you know, too, too fine a point, but I think we are currently sleepwalking in the UK into the biggest crisis of this country with what we mm. were we are doing to the farming system. And I say that not because I'm just thinking, oh, you know, poor farmers and and it's, it's the industry that I obviously operate in. I think you cannot underestimate the connection that agriculture and farming has to so many other industries, whether that's health, whether that's education, whether that's environment, climate, you know, all of these all of these things even housing you mentioned you know what what how much green space do we give up for housing development and then what does that do to the price of housing in this country agriculture is absolutely central to all of these things and if we get that policy wrong you have unhealthy people that are costing our national health system millions if not billions of pounds you have a lack of education and again that leads to sort of poor choices, uh, knocks on with your health as well, knocks on with your ability to, you know, to learn and to study and to take on information if you don't have a good diet. There, there are so many knock-ons and, you know, that's not even touching the, the kind of environmental consequences, which we all know, you know, whether there are climate deniers or people with a difference of opinion or, or what we know that our climate is shifting, it's changing, seasons are changing. Um, you know the pattern of nature is changing there is a huge global biodiversity loss I think there is some crazy statistic that actually the UK is now one of the least biodiverse countries in the world which you know again it's someone that spends their life wandering around looking at trees looking at birds looking at getting excited about butterflies it's so sad to think that in my lifetime we might lose some of these creatures you know more that we've lost already you know it is absolutely vital that at some point the world takes a pause and actually considers the huge value of people that work in farming and again it's not just about that food that they're producing it is all of the social and environmental benefits of of having a really resilient farming community and when we talk about resilience it was something that you know during the pandemic in this country, I don't know how, if it happened in the US and other areas. But when the pandemic hit, all of these kind of crazy global supply chains just went totally into meltdown. And yet the people that were still out there, still supplying food, still supporting their neighbours, supporting their community, getting food boxes out, helping those in need, were the, were the small scale independent farmers. They were the ones that kept things going. They had shelves that were still full, whereas you went to a supermarket and they were empty. It is absolutely vital that we support small scale farmers. And and like you said, I think our average age is is a little bit north of where you guys are. Um, It is so difficult for new entrant farms to get into farming, not only because of the cost of land, but also farming hasn't in this country been a kind of very sexy uh, job title. You know, it's kind of seen as well, though, sadly, you're either, you know, from a farming background or like, why on earth would you want to do that? It's pretty miserable. And that is something that we have to change, because actually farming just offers so many opportunities. And I have to say, when I was at school, it was never on my radar to get involved in, in farming. I grew up around family farms. I always had a sort of a relentless, you know, connection to nature and was always out exploring and being outside, but it never ever, not ever, did I once think I would be a farmer because I wasn't from a farming family. Um, And it just absolutely was never presented to me as an option. And again, I think that kind of slightly leads to that imposter syndrome because sometimes I do sit here and think, well, you know, technically I am a new entrant. I have come into this completely fresh eyes. I had a career um, before I got involved in this. that was very different. And I have had to learn everything very deeply on the go. And that isn't always something that's encouraged, um, whether that's financially or socially encouraged. And especially like as a woman in farming, again, I think that is something that is slightly more challenging. It's not always encouraged. It's perceived well, you need to be quite strong and you need to be able to do this and that the other. And actually, again, there there are ways around all of those things. I think we have to, have to, have to, have to recognize that if we don't start changing our ways and support small scale farmers, they literally won't be there. And that isn't me being overdramatic. I mean, it is literally happening. At the moment, we um, we're having a really difficult time in two particular sectors in agriculture, which is the dairy industry. Um, there are it, it is so sad. I get all the kind of farm sale emails to say, you know, dispersal sale. We're selling off this stock. We're selling off, you know, these bits of kit. And the number of dairy farm dispersal sales breaks my heart that land in my inbox each week at the moment. And the other sector is um, is the pork industry, uh, you know, in part because of COVID, in part because of Ukraine, in part because of many other things. Um, it has just become, you know, so difficult for farmers to actually turn a profit producing pigs and especially you know slow grown native breed pigs where they're on the ground for longer they're fed you know really good quality food it is incredibly challenging for them and at the same time we've got a government that is importing you know very very cheap industrial pork from all over the world and not supporting those pig farmers that are struggling on the doorstep you know likewise with sheep you know sheep farming is is about to go through a pretty torrid time and here we are importing you know, again, lots of new lamb from New Zealand. And the one thing that we do in this country, probably better than almost anywhere in the world, is we grow grass. You know, we are a pastured, we are a hedgerow and a tree and a pastured landscape. And so we should never, ever, ever have a problem with domestic supply of, of sheep or cattle. But yet here we are with so many imports coming from, Farming systems that are nowhere near as good as the ones that are, you know, hardworking farmers are creating. And yet they are being driven down on price and it, and it's becoming totally unsustainable for them. And with that goes the food quality, goes that local community, goes the opportunity, you know, for education, for school visits to local farms and all of those wonderful things that that go with it. And it is um it is truly it is truly a concern of mine and i hope you know we try and do what we can do in our business um to shore up just even a tiny percent of it and it is something that i've committed my life and will commit my you know career to to doing Uh, alongside writing lovely cookbooks and doing all that exciting stuff i actually my day-to-day job is working directly with our 45 small-scale farmers and so i'm out every day on farms talking to farmers visiting farms And it is, it is terrifying the stories that you hear with people genuinely concerned, you know, I I don't think I'm gonna be able to pass the farm on to the next generation. I don't know how much longer I can continue doing this. It's, you know, it's really depressing, but you cannot, I can't sit here and paint a rosy picture and say that, Mm. oh, I think, you know, it's going through a bit of a tough time and it's gonna change. It's in a pretty bad place. and that's why again you know i'm so passionate and if this book can do something just to just to really give you that kind of confidence to say seek out those people because they really do need they do need support um and at the moment they're not getting much from major retailers and they're certainly not getting much from government so it is kind of down to the consumer that you either seek them out and keep them or you will lose them
0: absolutely and your book is I think such a profound part of that, that you're that shift that you're talking about, because if people don't know how to put this food on their plate, they're not going to eat it. They're not going to buy it. And you made it so straightforward in here, how we can put this food on our plate. And that really is the, uh, the meat of the matter, if you will, because without, the tactile shift, you know, in what we're tasting and smelling and seeing and hearing. I agree with you. If we don't make the choice now, we will not have a choice in the future. Very far down the
2: road. Yeah. And it, it is, you know, I, I'm incredibly lucky that I grew up with that knowledge handed down to me by my grandparents, by, you know, my mom was an, an amazing cook as well, or is an amazing cook. She's still around, poor um,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Like I, I had... I had that kind of influence we used to our neighbors used to rear they were dairy farmers and they used to rear geese and we would drive up and down the lane and we would you know see them growing for months and months on end and we'd go oh we're gonna have that one for Christmas and so it was that real connection to growing up and and again we would have friends that would shoot pheasants and leave them in the feather hung up on the door and we would pluck them and you know that that was the sort of lucky childhood that I had the opportunity to have and I appreciate not everybody does but it it is those skills that if we don't look after them like you say people just won't know what to do with it if you handed a kid from inner city London a brace of feathers in the fur they would probably scream and go what is that that's not food (laughs) I don't want to do that but it was only sort of i don't know 50 60 70 years ago Mm. you would hand that brace of feathers to a kid in in inner city london and they would know what to do with it Mm. and Mm. you know this sort of city rural divide isn't anything other than uh, the way that we've shifted as a as a kind of country and a community to completely detach ourselves from where our foods come from um and it's happened in such a quick amount of time you think all of the millennia that there has been food farmed on the planet and (laughs) it's literally been in the last sort of few decades we've kind of ripped up the rule book and gone oh well all of that worked for so long but you know I've got this new idea (laughs) we're going to start producing everything in factories and we're going to shut these doors and you know shut these gates and not allow people in to embrace it and It's really truly sad, and I hope. um, I do feel. I know that's all been really depressing, but I do actually feel um, it is depressing. But there is hope, and actually, with the job that I do, do you do meet so many inspiring people? And oh my God, I just some days I think, thank God you guys are doing what you're doing. You know, Mm -hmm. we're so lucky to have them on board as our collective of farmers and there is there is hope but that hope needs to be encouraged and supported and and it is truly sad to say but i don't think it is encouraged and supported by either retail or government and so it is unfortunately it's in our hands to say well what can we do about it you know let's get the the people movement going and can we do anything more um
1: we are really we are really glad abby that you are doing what you're doing listening to you talk you know to to andrew's questions just absolutely spellbinding um, and you said you know earlier on you you said i don't want to get political but it is political and you know hearing you talk so passionately and with such depth about something that is so close to us and our listeners hearts is is really inspiring so yeah we're we're really glad you're doing what you're doing too
2: Oh, well, thank you. And uh, and thank you so much for the opportunity of sharing it. And, you know, because I do feel I am speaking for a collective of, you know, of Piper's Farm Farmers, but also Mm. speaking for a a collective of farmers around the country and around the world that are probably all going, yeah, you know, we've all got the same problem. So it's brilliant to be able to have the opportunity to talk about these things and, you know, get that message out there. Because if we don't talk about it, it won't change.
0: Alison, do you want to bring up that second essay that you had? Because I feel like it ties up everything we just talked about.
1: It kind of does. Thank you for (laughs) noticing that, Andrea. Um, (laughs) I feel like everything that you just talked about, Abby, um, you know, was a response to Andrea saying, you know, you've written this essay about the slow disappearance of family farms. And the flip side of that is another essay in the book, which is how we eat shapes the world we live in. And we're... Time's moving on, so I'm just going to say the really important points here, I feel, which is Michael Pollan has said cooking is a political act. And, you know, the work that we do in the kitchen with these recipes, with the farms that we're buying our um, food from, with the plates that we're putting in front of the family that we care for so much, we are voting we are being political. We are voting with the work that we're doing in the kitchen. And with that vote, we are voting for what food system we want, for what world we want to live in, because like the essay that you have in the book is titled, How We Eat Shapes the World We Live In. And there's a quote in the book somewhere, which says, the best farming mixes the old with the new. And I feel like that's kind of a tenant of this podcast, it, you know, the the podcast is titled Ancestral Kitchen, but we're both modern women living in modern kitchens. And we can take all of this wisdom from the past, but also use what we've learnt now and some of the technology that we have now to help. And we can create something just wonderful. And when I visualize the world I want to live in, well I want to live in a world where those farmers are there looking after that land, caring for those animals in that way, where the animals don't have to travel hundreds of miles to be slaughtered, where people are sitting down and feeling the sense of incredible satisfaction of having cooked and known where that food comes from. And, yeah, I just wanted you to talk for a couple of minutes, if you can, on, on because you're so eloquent. I, I feel like it's, it's been wonderful to listen to you talk about how we eat shapes the world that we live in.
2: To be honest, I think you've summed it up beautifully. There, it, it, it is. It goes back to that quote, that political act. It goes back to that that sort of saying that you do have three votes a day. You do have that choice. Now, the one thing I will say is, not everybody has as much choice as other people, mm-hmm. and those that have more ability to to choose have, I believe, even more pressure on their shoulders to make a positive choice. And so I can't fix, you know, enabling that choice fairly for everyone overnight. But what I can do is encourage those that are more, you know, in a place where they can do more to do more. Um, Mm. And then with them doing more, hopefully it allows people that aren't able to choose as freely more opportunity in the future. So I think it's always good just to make that point um, because I do feel that is something that that we all have to work together to make systematic change that is fair for everybody. Um, But in terms of what we should be eating, you know, going into a supermarket and buying a horrible ready meal that has been produced with industrial meat and such poor ingredients, if those products keep selling, those supermarkets will keep buying them, they will keep making them which will then mean that is what the farmers are told to produce. If we can actually start to sort of disconnect ourselves from that mindset that we have to just only use these kind of convenience stores as a place to buy food and we can seek out other places. Again, it, it puts pressure on those supermarkets to put some of those products in their store. It's been really interesting um, movements around things like plastic reduction. There's been quite a lot of pressure in the UK uh, to remove plastic. I mean, this is going back to the nineties, yet it's really only starting to happen now. And actually those supermarkets are starting to wake up to go, no, this is really important to our customers. They aren't going, you know, they're not being quiet on this subject Mm -hmm. and they just won't buy from us if we don't make these things, you know, happen. And so I do believe there is a lot as consumers that we can do. Um, there is a lot of power that we have in, in our hands, but and especially there are some people that, as I say, have more choice and more power than others and can force that change more. And again, global um, organisations and businesses such as ours have, have a bigger voice than potentially you know one person just doing their weekly shop. But it all matters. It all means mm. something, and it all counts. And um, I mean, I, I was really lucky at the beginning of the year, I took some time out and I went on holiday and I went to South Africa and I wanted to just get properly lost in nature and do all the amazing things that you get to do when you're in a country like that. And we were driving around and it was so present to me on such a huge scale how what those big global corporations, the Cargills, the Bears, you know, the the big boys, what they are pushing that country to do and absolutely reshaping that landscape. I mean, we started the journey and there were beautiful vineyards and loads of people about and really lovely mixed farms and lots of stalls on the side of the road with people selling things that were produced on the farm or you know come in and have a tasting or come in and have this meal very like welcoming and as they say you know people buzzing about we got deeper and deeper into the country and the fields became bigger the equipment became bigger and the people became fewer though you know we drove for two hours and I saw one person it was just absolutely stark where we entered into those kind of big maize fields and Mm. big wheat fields had completely moved away from you know somebody growing hops and then growing some grapes and then maybe growing some tobacco and maybe you know and a whole kind of diverse mix of things Mm. it is so critical that we really think about the ingredients that we're buying and just think about where in the world has that been produced and what is the impact to the person producing it does that person in South Africa really want to be sat on a massive Mm. machine spraying chemicals all over that field or is that really the only option that they have for employment and it's it's asking ourselves those questions that I think will help shape what we
1: should be eating yeah amen There's one other part of the book that I want to highlight before we finish um, because it's really quite a big part of the book and important to me, which is offal. So a lot of people listening to the podcast enjoy eating offal, want to eat more offal, want more ideas for how to cook offal. And there are a lot of recipes in the book for offal. There's an ox liver with onions and wild garlic. There's seared pig's heart. There's another heart recipe. There's two other heart recipes. There's a haggis. I cooked the ox liver with vinegar glazed onions and crispy sage, which again has got that wonderful balsamic vinegar in. And it was really wonderful. So I would say to anyone who's listening who wants more ideas for offal, which I think is most of our listeners, that there are some wonderful recipes for offal in here. Um, And, you know, they used to be um, just an important part of our diet, just like muscle meat. And they can easily be incorporated back into the kitchen and very excitedly, you know, with the recipes that you've got here, they there's a wonderful selection of waffle recipes. I, I think that's a wonderful um would wondered was it a conscious choice that you had for the book or um was it the things that the chefs gave you and just to say thank you for doing that because I think it's a really good choice. <laughs>
2: Well, a pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure to be awful mad. Um, No, it was definitely a conscious choice, but you can also thank my other half for it because he absolutely loves awful. He would probably eat awful every day of his life if he could, if I would make it for him. Um, Because, yeah, if it's liver or heart or kidneys or, you know, he absolutely is is a huge, awful fan. So with that, I am always trying to come up with Mm. different interesting ways of doing it. Um, And we, yeah, like you say, we had some amazing chefs that also contributed some brilliant recipes. And it was part of the brief that when we were putting together the book, it was like, well, we know that we want to have recipes that help people really stretch meat out or use up waste. But we definitely also want to have recipes that really help balance that carcass because that's a hugely Mm. important part of our story you know if everyone was to just demand well i only want to eat you know sirloin of beef and i won't eat anything else and it would be very challenging we have to make sure that we maximize the value of every single piece of meat that comes off that carcass and i think it's brilliant that you guys are into offal because it's an absolute no-brainer it is probably the most nutritious part of of the animal And actually, when you look in the wild, it's the thing that any wild animal will eat first because it has the least value. Mm. And so kind of, you know, the the clue is there. Um, But it is, again, something that we've been conditioned that whenever I talk to people about offal, they go, oh, but I don't like the taste or I don't like the texture. And that is because it is different. To, to the rest of the meat on the carcass. And it has had this perception, I think, because it hasn't always been handled that well. You can have offal that hasn't been treated particularly brilliantly. Um, and then it will pick up some of those characteristics, like maybe it will be quite a lot more irony or a bit more bitter. Um, and again, you know, to heart back to the abattoir thing, if you kill an animal properly, where they are you know absolutely low stress and it is a respectful slaughter method you will have better offal um that is an absolute fact and so again if you are searching for offal it is really really a good tip to just have a look at where you're buying that from because again the flavor profile will very very much change depending on how stressed that animal was at slaughter just one side note um in terms of cooking offal I always say to everyone, it, it's nothing to be afraid of. It is literally no different to cooking a steak. It is, you know, the difference between cooking a piece of braising beef or a steak is temperature, you know, cooking method, exactly the same goes for offal. Um, you need to just approach it going, this has got a slightly different texture. Um, but something like um, like a heart cooks exactly the same way as a steak. It is a very similar, similar um ingredient to work with but the great thing also about offal is it can handle quite a lot of different treatments so it can handle loads of different flavors you can do spicy you can do creamy you can do really super simple it loves herbs it loves butter it loves caramelization Um, and it also can be slow cooked or it can be fast cooked so again it gives you an enormous array of different ways that you can use it and experiment with it in the kitchen and you'll find that there are things that you like better than others. And again, I, I always think offal is brilliant on the barbecue. It's something that people don't do very often. But, you know, again, in places like Brazil, they love, you know, chicken hearts charred on the barbecue. Just such a treat. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I really would love to encourage people, just to feel confident open-minded bit creative when, when it comes to offal you don't need to kind of go to the same old you know in this country it's steak and kidney and liver and bacon and you know there's all those wonderful classic dishes which are amazing but there are there are lots of different ways that you can cook with offal and anyone that's thinking oh god i'm just not really quite sure about all of this i know i know it's good for me and i know i should just start slowly one one thing that i always encourage people to do is um, just start adding it into a few things, so you can dice up liver really fine. Just get a get a get a nice sharp knife, and just run your knife over it and chop it into really really fine shreds, almost like you're mincing it on a chopping board. And then you can add it into things like lasagnas or pastas or um, cottage pies or you know all of those lovely hearty hearty recipes. And it won't be overbearing. And you're just starting to kind of introduce yourself to that taste and to that texture. And then you can sort of build up confidence over time.
1: And then you can make the haggis.
2: (laughs) And then you can make the haggis. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It is brilliant that the haggis is is really wonderful. And that's something that I love. I really wanted to put it in the book because um, it does require you to have to talk to somebody a bit different in order to find, you know, the bung to put the to push the meat into you're not going to be going up to your you know your supermarket and saying can I have some intestines please because I want to make <laughs> <hay if> soup. <laughs> it does encourage people to seek out a good farmer a good butcher or somewhere to find those ingredients
0: yeah, I can't wait to make that then. one
1: oh Andrea do you I know you have tons more you want to ask Abby but do you have anything else you want to ask Abby in this episode
0: <laughs> oh you know I'm in love with everything so we'll just have to try and talk to her again sometime (laughs) yeah wonderful do you have anything you
1: want to add abby anything that we haven't asked or anything that's in your head
2: well i just want to say a huge thank you and and i really truly mean that like a huge thank you to you guys for being so inspirational that you've created this kind of platform and um this opportunity for us to have this conversation i mean that's no mean feat you've been so kind and generous with the things that you've you said about me and the business and Piper's Farm and all the things that you know we do but I mean amazing for you guys to have done this and to pull together a group of people that are so interested in in your mission Um, and then also a massive thank you to everybody listening to this because you know you don't have to and it's it's just absolutely wonderful that yeah we have the opportunity to share a little bit of you know our magic with you guys and I really truly hope everybody's enjoyed it thank you we're looking forward to the next cookbook
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah thank you <laughs> well,
2: yeah there, there are scribbles and lists and Excellent. and stuff everywhere on that so yeah hopefully and in due course it. it will come but it's um it is definitely in the in the creative phase at the moment
1: that's good that's a nice phase wonderful thank yeah. you so much for your time and um you're wonderful, kind of I've had goose pimples like four or five times while you were talking i want I want you to be up there like in Parliament as an m. p, e- explaining, persuading everyone else, because I think you're um you do an incredible job um advocating for your farmers and for this way of life. So thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you guys. thank you so much to you both.
1: Thank you. bye. thank you so much for listening we'd love to continue the conversation come find us on instagram andrea's at farm and hearth and allison's at ancestral underscore kitchen until next time we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.